0: This life-changing message comes to you from Church of the Harvest. It's our prayer that this message will inspire your life and bring hope to your future. So anyway, I'm going to jump right on in and um, I'm going to continue on and do hard things. And I know a lot of you were gone last week. How many of you were at the ladies' conference last week? So I'm going to repeat last week's message. And no, I'm just kidding. I'm not going to do that. But we're going to jump on into part two. I am going to recap for just a couple of minutes, um, and uh, I do encourage you, if you have not, to jump on and listen to, uh, to last week's message. But we started a series called Do Hard Things, Talked about how our society does not like to do the hard things anymore. And why is that? I think it's because we've gotten so comfortable in our life, we've gotten more concerned with our comfort than we have with doing what's right. We've got more, gotten more concerned with our comfort than we have doing what needs to be done and even caring sometimes for the needs of our family. What we found is our society has been consumed with just everything being about comfort. Does that make sense? Everything being about entertainment, everything being about what... We've become so self-absorbed that nothing else really seems to matter. We talked about how people say things like, say, just do your best, does just do your best make you want to go all out and go the extra mile and everything else? Of course not. When somebody says just do your best, if it's really what it is. We take it as permission to just do good enough, to just meet the bare minimum standard, to just meet up to the expectation that somebody has of us. And I talked about that um, when I was talking about a book that I read, there's actually a book I realized I read years ago called Do Hard Things. It's a, it's a book um, about teenagers. And in that book it said, it's easy to be content with less than our best, especially when our half-hearted efforts seem to satisfy everyone around us. Isn't that true? How many times have we looked at something that we've done and gone, ah, that's good enough? And we go on to the next project, right? We communicate to our kids. We say to our kids, you know what? you're not big enough, you're not not old enough, you're not brave enough, you're not wise enough to do something big. One day you'll grow up, and one day you'll be able to do the big stuff. And what it ends up doing is instilling this in our kids and holding back lots of potential from the time they're a very young age. We talked about how in the Bible there's no such thing as a teenager. You're a child, and then you're a man. You're a child, and then you're a woman. The word teenager was first used in 1941 in an article in Reader's Digest. In many cultures of the world, adulthood was based on puberty. You reach puberty, you're an adult. It was time to get married and have children. We were talking about how even in Spain, in the year 2015, the year of consent for marriage was 13 years old. And even now, worldwide, the average age is 15. 15. Now, I'm not saying that our children should go get married at 13, 14, and 15 years old, right? I'm just saying that we have dumbed down the standards so much, especially in our culture. We've dumbed down the standard and the responsibility and the accountability in our young people, and it's instilled that in them. And I think that happened in many, if not most, of us. And we grew up the same way, never really doing the hard things. We, as I told you, we, we expect our kids to make their bed and to clean their room once a week and do a chore. We went on we talked about David Farragut, who um, in in the 1800s, at 10 years old, he was a U.S. Navy cadet. At 11, he saw his first battle at sea. At age 12, he commanded a captured ship and its prisoners. He was the first admiral in the U.S. Navy, and he led the troops to victory at the Battle of Mobile Bay. We grow up as 13, 14, 15-year-olds getting trophies on a last-place team. Getting a pat on the back for riding the bench all season, getting smiley face stickers because we didn't talk too much, and getting a pat on the back and a good job because we brushed our teeth. We grow up into adults that can't make any hard decisions in life. If we can't do the hard things, how in the world can we expect God to use us to our full potential and to use us to do something that's truly great in life? But I might fail. Yes, you will. Sounds like a lot of trouble. It will be. Sounds tiring. It'll be exhausting. But I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, right? How can we believe that we are children of the King of kings and the Lord of lords and that we're called to greatness if we can't do the hard things that he's called us to do? I gave you three things last week, and you can follow along on the note sheet in your service guide. First one was, why do hard things? Number one, sometimes it's the only choice to move forward. Sometimes we find ourselves in a bad situation, and unfortunately there are many people in life that never move forward because they won't make a hard decision to get themselves out of that situation. Sometimes it's the only choice, and sometimes on occasion, it's not even our fault. We talked about how from Mark chapter 4, Jesus and the disciples were in the storm. The storm wasn't their fault. The disciples were given up. They thought they were gonna die. But they turned to the Lord. They turned to Jesus. And he was the one who made it into a made it into a learning, a teaching moment. And he said, You can trust Father in storms. There's no need to freak out. Don't give up. You can make it. God's got your back. Sometimes we know what we're supposed to do, we know where we're supposed to go. And we know what we have to do to move forward, but instead, we impede our own purpose in life because we're not willing to make the hard choices that it takes to move forward. Second thing I gave you was the reward is worth the battle. I'm sorry, the reward is worth the sacrifice. Great things don't happen because we take the easy way out. If we make hard, difficult decisions today, we will reap rewards of them tomorrow. We talked about how everybody remember when they bought their first car, you did what it took to save up that money or to adjust your budget, to, adjust, to control your spending so that you had the money to buy that car or to make those payments or whatever it took. And then there was such satisfaction when you pulled out of that lot the first time. The harder something is, the more satisfaction we find. And really, that's just sowing and reaping. If we boldly do the hard things today, we will reap the benefits, we will reap the rewards at a later time. The last thing I said, why do hard things, is to prove our trust in God. And we were reading out of 1 Samuel chapter 30, where David is leading the armies back. They're coming back from this great battle, and they're just ready to get home. And they come in, and the city has been burned down, and everything has been taken, and even their wives and children are gone. And it says they wept till they had no more tears to weep. What in the world do you do? You prove your trust in God. And that's what it says David did. It said he stopped and he strengthened himself. In the Lord. And I think many times, unfortunately, we as Americans have gotten so comfortable with our lives that there's no reason to rely on God anymore. And I think that we tend to try and manipulate and control our environment and our circumstances so that things always go a certain way so that we don't have to step outside of our comfort zone and do something that's truly uncomfortable. And so what we end up doing is settling for a life that's simply a 9 to 5 grind where we get home in the evening and we eat our dinner we watch TV, go to bed and start over again and that becomes our entire life. And next thing you know, we're wondering why we're going through a midlife crisis. We're wondering what in the world our purpose is and, and we're wondering why nobody appreciates us in any way. And the reality is we're doing nothing of significance. We're doing nothing beyond what has to be done. We're doing nothing beyond what's required. Does that make sense? We were created for more than a mediocre life, but we've got to step up and we've got to start making hard decisions and doing hard work. What is the point that we decide to stop living that mediocre life and start doing hard things? The last one the last questions I asked was, what are you believing for? Most Christians aren't believing for anything in their life today. What is it that you're believing for that's so much bigger than what you can do on your own? It's bigger than what you can just save up for. It's bigger than what you can just accomplish tomorrow. What is it that you're standing and you're truly believing God to do in your life, in the lives of those around you, in your church, in your community? What what are you really, truly standing and believing God for? Don't settle for God's less than God's best in your life. Don't let fear, pride, or laziness hold you back. Know who you are in Christ. Stand tall and do something hard. That's what I started with. And so we're going to go on today, and I'm going to talk about two things. Like I said, this is in your note sheet. Um, two things. We're going to talk about going beyond your comfort zone, which, which uh, Mr. Michael hit just a little bit this morning, going beyond your comfort zone and going beyond what is expected. Now, what is a comfort zone? We all have some comfort zones in our life, don't we? Our comfort zone's always a bad thing? No. Man, my home's a comfort zone. I hope home's a comfort zone for you too. I love being... Is there anything better than being at home with family at the end of the day and being able to relax. That is a comfortable place, isn't it? Hopefully in your life, hopefully that is a comfortable place. Hopefully it's a safe place. It's a refuge. It's a place that you can't wait to get to at the end of the day. Comfort zones are not necessarily a bad thing. And really what they are, they're these invisible barriers in our life that make us feel safe and secure. And that's a good thing. All of us have comfort zones. The problem comes when we refuse to step outside of our comfort zone. So your home may be a comfort zone, but it's a problem if you'll never step outside the door. Right? So sometimes we begin to surround ourselves by our comfort zones, talking about controlling and manipulating our environment, our circumstances. We do that, but to make a comfort zone. The problem begins to take place when we choose to live in our comfort zone. We get used to something, or when we have done something a particular way for a long time, or when we just don't want something to change, then we find that we're getting stuck in a comfort zone, right? And I think comfort zones develop and, and they can make us feel so safe and secure that we really never want to change the way that we do things sometimes. And I think, isn't that part of the reason that change can be so difficult? Isn't it really all about the comfort zone? Everybody knows that. Change can be difficult, right? I I've seen it in the church for my entire life. I know, y'all be honest with it. Some of y'all going to lie. No, some of you are going to lie. How many of you would admit that you have almost gone off before because somebody took your seat at church? You walked in, you were, and you truly had to hold your tongue. You did not know what in the world to do. They know, they're not a visitor. They, they know that's my seat. I sit there every. I have sat there every week. For, for seriously, I, I can probably say this now. Years and years and years ago, way back, uh, we had a, a situation. One Sunday morning, we had a, a couple of teenage boys who who each week they, they would sit in the back. Their parents were on the worship team, different stuff, and so they'd be sitting by themselves in worship. And they'd start cutting up and talking. I could hear them in their worship. I'd be turning around and be like, shh. And so finally, one Sunday worship was about to start, and I said I said, "Hey guys, come on up here." I said, "Y'all sit behind me." So they sat behind me on the second row. Right, sat right behind me on the second row. Worship gets started, we're just a couple minutes in, and I guess the person who owned that seat showed up, and I'm talking about a scene during praise and worship in the middle of the aisle, I mean, it had to go to the hallway, and I'm out there having to explain, I I, I didn't think, I I asked them, she's going off on these boys, I, I asked them to sit, trying to explain why in the world these people were sitting in her seat. Right? <laughs> talking about the church again, I, was, I did a wedding about a week and a half ago and, um, at, a, at a, uh, a Baptist church in Memphis, and I was talking to one of the ladies on staff there, and, and she was asking about our church and what we were like, and she asked about our worship and different things, and I was, I, we were just kind of talking back and forth and talking about how we were kind of contemporary, and she said, yeah, we've been trying to go contemporary. It's tough, man. It's, she said, you know, they, they finally got a few instruments on the stage and some different stuff, and it's like, you know... It, We're trying, but yeah, another church of you know two to three thousand members, and said, "Man, it's it's tough. We got people that have been part of the church thirty and forty years, and you know said they're just kicking back over this whole thing. Change is hard sometimes, isn't it? When it goes beyond what we're comfortable with, what we're used to. I think so often we become scared. That's some of that fear that Michael was talking about. We become scared of what may happen if we step outside of that comfort zone." And so I'm going to go into another story. Last week we talked about, um, we talked about King David. Uh, this week I want to talk for a few minutes about Nehemiah. How many of you know the story of Nehemiah? I love, I love the story of Nehemiah. Go to and If you turn in your Bible, turn to Nehemiah chapter 1. And I'll give a little background first on Nehemiah. Nehemiah, if you're not familiar with him, Nehemiah was a, was a displaced Jew. He was living about 1,000 miles from his home, his home being Israel, being Jerusalem. He's living about 1,000 miles away in Persia, which today would be known as Iran, right? And so he was among some of the Hebrews who remained in Persia, in the the Persian Empire, following the 70 years of Babylonian captivity. Y'all familiar with this? Kind of ringing a bell? So you had the time when at the end of that 70 years of Babylonian captivity, uh, Cyrus allowed the Israelites to return home to Jerusalem, but some of them decided to stay behind in Persia. Why? Why? Well, 70 years had gone by. For many of them, this is the only life they'd ever known. This was their home now, right? The home of their ancestors was back home in Israel, Jerusalem. But this is where they were established now. So some of them chose to stay where they were. And so Nehemiah is one of these. He, he, his family was established and living in Persia. And so that's where he stayed. But, his, but he had family and ancestors and stuff. They were all back in Israel, a 1,000 miles away, right? So Nehemiah... He had risen to this place of, con- of, of, of prominence, and he became the cupbearer to King Artaxerxes of Persia. And he was living the comfortable life. And if you can imagine, I mean, he's, he's living in the king's palace. He probably slept on satin sheets, probably slept on down pillows. He ate the king's food. He was with the king at every meal. He had the king's ear. The Bible says that they talked and they chit-chatted. And so he was in a place of influence, And most people, compared to most people that day, it would certainly be said that Nehemiah was living the life. He had it made. And so one day we see that some Jewish friends of Nehemiah, they come back to Persia from a visit back at home, and they'd gone to Jerusalem. And Nehemiah asked them a question that really changed his life forever. And so going there, starting in Nehemiah um, chapter 1, it says in verse 1, it says, It came in the month of Chislev, the 20th year, uh, as, it, as I was in Shushan, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came with men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. So he basically just wants to know, what's the news? What's the news with our folks who, who survived the captivity, those who went back? What's, what's the story on Jerusalem? How are things today? And in verse 3 it says, And they said to me, The survivors who are left from captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down. Its gates are burned with fire. So it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. And I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Nehemiah hears these words and it shakes him. It shakes him to the core. It shakes him to his knees. It actually goes on to say, It actually says that he began to cry out to God, not just for a moment. If you look at it, it was actually four months that he was seeking God, that he was fasting, and he was praying, trying to see what to do. And my thought in this is, knowing the story of Nehemiah, one of my thoughts is, you think it took four months for God to tell him what to do? I think it probably didn't. I think he probably, the fact that he was so broken down, that he was so grieved, I think he knew what he was supposed to do. And I think that he was living... His life, everything was going for him. I mean, if he was a believer today, he said, man, God's blessed my life. This is obviously where I'm supposed to be. Everything's going my way. It's just, you know, it's not supposed to be me. I'm not supposed to be the one to go back. I'm not supposed to be the one to go take care of this. Four months, he seeks, he prays, and he fasts, but he refused to ignore what God was telling him to do in his heart, which was to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild those walls. He could have continued to live in luxury in Persia, but Nehemiah's heart was 1,000 miles away in Jerusalem. With the heart of God. And so if you jump, um, go over a chapter, Nehemiah chapter 2 in verse 4, and, and what you find here, Nehemiah is still at every meal with the king, and they would talk, and the king finally asks him, says, hey man, what's wrong with you? You haven't seemed the same lately. Why has your face been downcast? Why do you seem sad? And Nehemiah just kind of, finally, he just spills it. And he says, the land of my ancestors is, is in ruins, and, and nobody's doing anything about it. And then what you see in verse 4 of chapter 2, it says, Then the king said to me, what do you request? That's huge. That's why you see the next words are, so I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king. You, that had to be one of them quick prayers. You see that all there together all at once. What do you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king. "That's one of them quick shundi prayers. Lord, uh, gee, gee. The king just asked me what, 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 what I want, right? And I, asked, I said to the king, if it pleases the king if your servant, if I have favor in your sight, I ask that you would send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. Understand, this was no easy job. Nehemiah had to gather the right supplies and the right people, and he had to transport them 1,000 miles to Jerusalem. Once there, he had to rally the Jewish people together to do this job. They also had to defend the walls against the governors of the surrounding territories who were very opposed to what they were about to do. And as a matter of fact, it actually says in the Bible, he told them to work with a tool in one hand and a sword in the other, because people were about to come against them because they saw this nation of Israel all of a sudden saw them rebuilding their wall. They knew the stories of what Israel had done years ago. They knew they had been conquered by the Babylonians. They knew what, what they were capable of before. All of a sudden they see them rebuilding their defensive walls. Now everybody's coming to check it out and, and attack, right? So so anyway, Nehemiah, here you find Nehemiah in this situation. And really, he could have justified not taking action. Now, what we know, the story goes on to say that the king basically gave him everything he needed, right? Gave him the supplies, gave him the people, gave him everything he needed to head to Jerusalem. Even gave him a letter with a seal on it to be able to walk through the territories in between and be able to make it through a safe passage. He gives him everything he needs to go. But Nehemiah could have totally justified not taking action. He had a great established life in Persia. Here's another thing that really gets me about this story. The people that were living there in Jerusalem, they didn't just get back. They had been there for a long time. I'd never realized how long. If you go to Ezra chapter 1, it talks about Zerubbabel leading the first wave of Jews back after the 70 years of, uh, of captivity. And they say that was the year 538 when Zerubbabel led the people back to Jerusalem out of captivity. It was now the year 444. 94 years had gone by and they had not rebuilt their city. What would we be saying today? If they don't care enough to rebuild their city that they're living in, why in the world should I care? Right? 94 years. And I I can just imagine the excuses. Years are going by, a century almost has gone by. Nehemiah was not an architect. He was not a builder. We don't see that he was a leader or a commander or a soldier or anything else. He was a cup bearer. His job did not require a college degree. His job was to taste the king's wine and make sure it wasn't poisoned. Right? He had zero qualifications to lead this little journey, do this little project, right? Except the fact that he knew the king, and he trusted God. But God moved on his heart to do something big, something that would rip him out of his comfort zone. The other person I thought of in the midst of this was, I was thinking too about Noah. Imagine when Noah starts building an ark. They argue it took, it took somewhere between 100 and 120 years to, to build the ark. You realize how many generations that was back then? That was quite a bit of Generations. Can you imagine? People had to come from far and wide, bringing their grandchildren and their great-grandchildren to see this thing this guy was building. There's no evidence in the Bible that it ever even rained a drop on the face of the earth. Rain is never mentioned in the Bible up to this point. Many believe that it had not before the flood. This guy's saying rain's going to fall and water's going to cover the earth like the ocean. So I'm building this big box that we're going to survive in. Can you imagine he had to be the laughing stock of the area, of the region. I imagine people came from far and wide to see this thing. Talk about doing something great and moving out of your comfort zone. And I think that's exactly what we find. We, we see all this chaos going on in our society today, but I believe exa- that's exactly what God is calling his people to today. He's calling us to do something great, each one of us, and he's stirring us to do something huge for his glory. And a lot of people, look, we don't. We don't have to go into the mission field to do something great for God. Here's reality if we can just get honest for a moment. Most of us are afraid to share the love of Jesus with the coworker we work next to every honking day of our life. For some of us, that's the first step. Just begin to share and invest into the people that God has placed us around every day of our life. We don't have to go anywhere to get out of our comfort zone. Matter of fact, and some of you may have heard back in the day, I remember reading, I had to look it up, um, a preacher, his name was Tony Compolo, and he talked back in the day about attending a prayer breakfast with the governor of Montana. And the evening before, he had, he had dinner with the governor the evening before the prayer breakfast, and he started asking the governor about the previous year's prayer breakfast. He said, what was it like? Who was the speaker? He said, what did he talk about? And he said, the governor recited back almost word for word the message that the speaker had given at the previous year's um, prayer breakfast. And it was all about... His testimony and how he became a follower of Jesus. And the governor knew this whole thing. So Tony said, so so you're a follower of Jesus? And he goes, no, actually. He said, you've never received Christ? And he said, no. He He said, why not? And he goes, well, frankly, I don't know how. Nobody's ever asked me. It's the governor of Montana attending a prayer breakfast year after year after year, hearing somebody's testimony about receiving Christ but has never personally nobody ever stepped out of their comfort zone to personally that's, that was his words nobody ever asked me nobody ever stepped forward and said you need jesus in your life many times we never take a step we never step out because we're afraid of what people will think we got to realize that there are people that may never come to jesus if we don't step out of our comfort zone and do something different than we're doing today and I think a problem is, in our comfort zone, we choose to ignore God, and, and sometimes we dig so deep into our comfort zone that we don't even hear His voice anymore, or we get even trapped in a place where we don't even feel like there's a way out of our comfort zone. And then we begin saying things like, well, I just don't think I could ever do that. I've told you all before, my greatest fear in life has always been standing in front of people. Having to stand, to talk, to sing, to do whatever, greatest I mean, I used to could vomit. Any of y'all like that? I mean, seriously, it just, isn't it amazing what God calls you to? We've got to leave our comfort zones. We've got to step into the life that God has called us to. What uncomfortable thing is it that God is leading you to do? What uncomfortable thing is he calling you to? Are you stuck in a comfort zone or are you stepping out in faith? Are you missing out on the blessings and the abundant life that God has for you because you refuse refused to step out of your comfort zone? I encourage you to step out, do something great, do something hard. And the second thing I want to talk about, I want to talk about going beyond what's expected. And I think this is big, going beyond what's expected, because we talked about how we live in this good enough society, right? Everybody seems to be satisfied and settled with good enough. And I think that we have, even within ourselves and within our culture, we've settled for good enough. We've settled for less than God's best for a very, very long time. And I think that really what we felt is that we're just fine simply accomplishing what's expected of us by others. And in thinking about this, I thought, you know, really the most important step that we can take in beating this tide of, of, um, uh, of low expectations is really to reject complacency and choose to do the hard things going above and beyond what's expected and required of us. The word complacency... I looked it up, it actually means self-satisfaction or smug satisfaction with an existing condition or situation. Does that make sense? If I had to define complacency, my, comp- my, my definition would be, eh, it's fine. Yeah, it's not bad. I guess that's good enough. Complacency. Selfish, smug satisfaction with what's currently going on, the existing condition and situation of things. Growing up, we did what was expected. We did what was expected of us, and we got a gold star for it. And how many of you are like us? We, we never consistently gave our kids um, an, an allowance. We, we, we tried it here and there for a while, but I struggled with one problem. And and no no condemnation if you give your kids allowance, okay? Please don't stop, they'll be mad at me. Um, Here's my only problem with allowance our kids are part of the family, and they live in our house for free. They're a contributing member. And if we pay them to do just what's expected, the things, just the basic things to just take care of stuff, then what are we teaching them? They're not going to get rewarded in the future for just doing the things that have to be done. We get rewarded when we go way beyond and we do something great. Does that make sense? It'd be a totally different matter if my kid starts doing something without being asked and then goes the extra mile. It'd be like, oh, my lands. Well, I just want to bless you, right? But it's a whole nother deal when they brush their teeth and pick up their room. You're like, you know, hey, dad, clean the room. You're like, yay, good. I mean, you're supposed to right? You're supposed to. It's like us as adults, you know, oh, honey, you brushed your hair today. Good job, you know, you know, woo, woo. Uh. Right? That's part of the problem of our society. We've rewarded people over and over. We've been rewarded. We rewarded our kids over and over again for just doing what needs to be done. And then they don't, why strive for anything else? You've already been rewarded, right? Before long, we're blinded by complacency, and we feel this false satisfaction for doing the bare minimum. Yes, I did it. I pleased mom and dad. I brushed my teeth. Mm, Instagram post, beep, right? Again, from the book, I want to read you a quick little paragraph from the book. It said, like pride, complacency thrives when hidden behind rationalizations. Does this make sense? Like pride, complacency thrives when hidden behind rationalizations, like, hey, I did my best. Obviously, this means that the the majority of complacent people don't think they have a problem. Since you don't think you have a problem, then how could you? I'm average. No, I think I'm above average. And somehow, being average has become okay with that. There's a daily online um, periodical called Bits and Pieces, and they said about complacency, complacency is a blight that saps energy, it dulls attitudes, and causes a drain on the brain. The first symptom is satisfaction with things as they are. The second is rejection of things as they might be. Good enough becomes today's watchword and tomorrow's standard. Complacency makes people fear the unknown, mistrust the untried, and abhor the new. Like water, complacent people follow the easiest course, downhill. They draw false strength from looking back. Proverbs one thirty two says, the complacency of fools destroys them. It's time for us to step up and do something more. It's time for us to stop doing just what's expected and go beyond. I I read to you last week about uh, David Farragut. I want to read you for a few minutes today about Theodore Roosevelt. And a lot of y'all may know his story, but I'm going to sum it up. And uh, it, 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 it'll take just a minute, y'all bear with me, but I, I found this very interesting. And I, I've got a whole list. I, I decided that during this, I wanted to, each week I wanted to give a biblical example, and I wanted to give an example that was not from the Bible. And so this is my one for today, Theodore Roosevelt. As a young teenager, Theodore Roosevelt didn't strike anyone as the kind of person who would become one of America's greatest presidents. From the time he was a toddler, severe asthma overshadowed everything he did. He was considered too delicate for school, and he was too weak to stand up to other boys. On doctor's orders... His father, rushed him to, his father and mother rushed him to seashore resorts and mountain cabins in hopes that the change of air would help him breathe. The sickly boy seemed unlikely to survive childhood, let alone amount to anything if he did. Of course, we all know that Theodore Teddy Roosevelt did more than survive. In a way that few men have matched, he thrived. In the eyes of his fellow Americans, he went on to reach the stature of George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, and Abraham Lincoln, his face forever immortalized with theirs on the side of Mount Rushmore. More than any of his contemporaries, Roosevelt led America into the 20th century. He was a cowboy on the western frontier. He was a police commissioner in New York City. He was a military hero in the Spanish-American War and the governor of New York. He was the first president to fly in an airplane, the first to be submerged in a submarine, the first to have a telephone in his home, the first to own a car. He was the first president to champion conservation and the first to pass laws protecting the environment. He was the first president to leave American soil while in office. In 1906, he became the first American awarded the Nobel Peace Prize for single-handedly negotiating a peaceful end to the Russo-Japanese War. I actually have a picture of that I found. And there he is with um, the Russian representatives and the Japanese representatives. He brought the war to an end. How did a severely nearsighted, asthmatic kid who wasn't expected to live past his 21st birthday go on to experience a life of such incredible accomplishment? The short answer is that as a teenager, Roosevelt chose to go beyond what was easy by reaching for what seemed impossible. Shortly before his 12th birthday, his father took him aside and challenged him to dedicate himself to the hard drudgery of building himself a strong body. Convinced and determined, young Roosevelt gave himself to it, spending hours each day lifting weights, hammering punching bags, and straining at pull-up bars. His sisters would later write that one of their most vivid childhood memories was the sight of their brother struggling between the horizontal bars, and in their words, widening his chest by regular monotonous motions, drudgery indeed. This was the beginning of a transformation, more than just physical, that would shape the rest of his life. Decades later, with conviction birthed in the hard drudgery of his teen years, Roosevelt said that the highest form of success would go only to the man who does not shrink from danger, from hardship, or from bitter toil. He learned the most important lesson of his life as a teenager. It was a lesson that informed and made possible everything he did from that point on to do the hard things. Here's what he said, uh, here's what he said about what he called the strenuous life. He said, I wish to preach not the doctrine of igno- ignoble ease, but the doctrine of the strenuous life, the life of effort, of labor, and of strife, to preach that the highest form of success which comes not to the man who desires mere easy peace, but to the man who does not shrink from danger, from hardship, or from bitter toil, and who out of these wins the splendid ultimate triumph. How awesome is that? Learn to go beyond. Wasn't really expected to live beyond 21 years old. At At what point do we get some determination and we stop satisfying for less than the best in life? I believe that's when the church is going to rise up, when the church gets sick and tired of being average, of being looked down upon, of always slinking away with our tail between our legs when everything gets tough. I think it's going to be when we rise up and we decide we're going to do the hard things. And here's reality in closing. We're followers of Jesus. We're called to do everything as a worship. Y'all know Romans 12, verses 1 and 2 it says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies, what? A living sacrifice. And I, I put that up there. The word bodies is not just referring to flesh. It's, it means more that which is mortal. It's talking about the physical life. It really encompasses every part of your life. So we're to present our bodies, our lives, every part of our life as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. What does that mean? It means it's the least we can do after what he did for us. The least we can do after he did that hard thing for us, the least we could do is to do some hard things for him and lay our lives down before him. Don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Jesus went all the way, guys, and we should do the same. I talked about this during the um, my life, my responsibility series, but I was talking about how People at work should be in awe of the peace on our lives. They should respect our work ethic. And they should come to expect the utmost integrity from us. Because we don't work for a paycheck like they do. Well, we do work for a paycheck. But not just for a paycheck. We work, we, everything we do, our work is a worship to our king. Right? If we live in as, as a worship, then we should do more than what's expected. And we should strive for excellence in everything that we put our hand to. People should be able to count on our word that we will say what we we will do what we say we're going to do, and that we're going to be on time, and that we're not going to do the bare minimum, and that we're going to go beyond what is expected. That we're going to go the extra mile, and that we're going to do everything with excellence. Right? I want to close by reading this. Y'all can come on up. I want to read Romans twelve again, but I verses one and two. But I want to read it from the Message Bible because I like the way Eugene Patterson says this. He says, "Here's what I want you to do." God helping you take your everyday ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, every part, and place it before God as an offering. Embrace what God does for you. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for Him. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit in without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what He wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings out the best in you, develops well-formed maturity in you. Will you step out of your comfort zone? And will you do in your life what the Holy Spirit's leading you to do? At what point will we stop and submit to his leadership and his guidance in our lives? We have been... We have been called out of darkness and into his glorious light. Our purpose is to seek and to do the will of God, isn't it? And he never said that would be easy. I think that we got to stop trying to figure things out before we do it. I think part of that is stepping out and walking in faith. Yeah. We've all done that before. One day I'm gonna do this once I've got this and this and this and this and this in place. How many of you before you had your first kid, you tried to hold off? Well, we're gonna wait till we're gonna wait till we're out of debt. Well, we wanna wait till we have a bigger house. We wanna wait till we it'll never happen. There's always gonna be another another thing, right? We've gotta quit trying to figure it all out, and we've got to begin to step in to what God has called us to do today. Does that make sense? Step out of our comfort zone, go beyond what's expected do the hard things, do something great. Let's stand up together. Let's bow our heads. And I was just, actually, y'all, don't bow your heads yet. Look at me for just a minute. I was just thinking, it just kind of came to me. We said that God did the hard thing. Jesus did the hard thing. That was going to the cross, right? You think there was a point where most of us today, maybe after the first stripe or two that Jesus received, we'd been going, Is that good enough? I think that's enough. Have I paid the price? That hurt. <laughs> right? At what point was it good enough for Jesus? maybe when they were leading him up the road when they threw a 120 pound beam on his back after he'd been beaten maybe it's when they were spitting in his face was there a point along the road that was good enough could have been after the three nails went in says he could have called on the angels of heaven right not good enough went all the way good enough was giving everything and really that's what we're called to do as followers of Jesus we're called to give away everything That's what I talked about last week we talk about receiving Christ don't tell people it's easy just pray a prayer no it's not easy it's not easy it says we pick up our cross and we follow him and we don't settle for good enough along the way. We don't settle for good enough a year down the line and backslide and put our cross down. We pick up that cross and we keep following day after day, following him down that road to execution, dying to ourselves and saying, "'Lord, not my will be done, but yours be done.'" It's not easy, It's not easy. We're walking the path of Jesus. He never came to the point of good enough until he paid the ultimate price. every head bowed if you're here and you would recognize that your life is not surrendered to Jesus you recognize maybe you've never given your life to Jesus then this is your moment but I know that many times at church that most people have this is your moment as well maybe you recognize where you're standing at this point in your life what you're surrounded with your your home environment your work environment as the message Bible said your everyday walking around life you realize that you're not carrying a cross. You realize that you're not walking that road to execution with Jesus. (laughs) You recognize that he's not right now the Lord and the master. Maybe you feel like you've dropped that cross on the road somewhere and you've run off to do your own thing. I invite you to come back and pick up the cross again. Come back and grab that big old thing and throw it up on your shoulder and say, Jesus, I'm gonna follow you. I'm going to follow you to the end I love you I'm going to serve you I know that you have a plan and purpose in my life and I'm going to quit trying to do my own thing and I'm actually going to trust your word I'm going to trust what you say and I'm going to trust you with my life if that's you and you recognize today with every head bowed that you need to surrender your life to Jesus today whether you ever have or not who would say I need to surrender my life to Jesus today Lift up your hand and let me see. Who would say, I need to give my life to Jesus today? All right? And since we're streaming online, I say the same thing to the folks who are watching online and those who watch on video as they do every week. As we pray this prayer, pray it with us. We're going to say it together. And the Bible says, if you mean it with your heart, if you confess it with your mouth, then you become a new creation. Old things are passed away, and behold, all things become new. Doesn't mean you throw the cross down. (laughs) Doesn't mean that the bad situation going on at work or in your family disappears. But it means the creator of the universe grabs your arm, and he coaches you along the way, and he helps to pull you along, and he comforts you, and he gives you peace, and he says, you can make it. You've got this. We're in this together and that changes everything. Let's pray this together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for doing the hard things. We thank you for paying the ultimate price. Jesus, we love you. We choose to serve you. We believe you died in our place. And we will follow you all the days of our lives. I confess today, Jesus, you are my Lord. Lead me. Guide me. Holy Spirit, fill me. Empower me to do everything that you've called me to do. Be my strength from this day forward. In Jesus' name. God, I thank you for every person that prayed that prayer. I pray, Lord, that you would just... That you would surround them by godly influences, in Jesus' name. That they would make good decisions. That they would get involved in church. They would surround themselves by godly people who will speak into them and lift them up and point them in the right direction. I just thank you, Lord, for what you're going to do in them and through them. If you'd like to get more information about resources from Church of the Harvest, please check out our website at midsouthharvest.org. You may also contact us by phone at 662-890-1573 or toll free at 866-383-8277.